Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. We'd love to meet you, so come visit us on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. or 11.30 a.m. at the Viscardi Center at 201 IU Willits Road in Albertson, New York. Now, Beacon is a non-for-profit, and if you shop Amazon, you can support the work at Beacon by selecting the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. And a small portion of every purchase will help move our work forward. Remember to shop at smile.amazon.com and select the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. Thank you and hope to see you soon. So what is your worst case scenario? And I mean your worst case scenario. What is the, the worst thing that could happen to you? Like, what is it that you are most afraid of falling into? And it, it might have changed for you over the years and in different seasons of life. And it, and it might even be different in different arenas of your life. You know, maybe in, when it comes to your personal and, re, and relational life, your biggest fear is being isolated and, and alone. And not only unloved, but feeling like you're unlovable. Or, or maybe for you, your worst case scenario is more in the, the arena of your professional life. And you are afraid of failure. Not just failing like occasionally along the way, but you're, you're afraid that you're going to be a failure. You're not going to live up to your own expectations. And, and that fear it follows you into your work. Uh, and maybe for you, you're not, you're not really concerned about being a failure. You know you're not going to be a failure, but you're concerned that you're just going to be mediocre. Like, you're, you might make it through, and you might make it through fine, but you're just going to kind of be okay, and that's it. And, and that terrifies you, that you won't be something more. You won't be something special, and you're haunted by what in your mind is your worst-case scenario. Maybe for you, you don't care about any of that, but you're, you're concerned that maybe you won't be able to provide for your family. That perhaps if you know, things go wrong at work and you could lose your job and not get a new one, that you won't be the provider that you desperately want to be. And that fear, it's there. There's this, this nagging sense. And you can know what your worst case scenario is, not because it's like always on your mind, but because it, it comes back to your mind frequently and easily. Like little things can trigger it. Like even, you know, a bad review at work isn't just a bad review. Like you, your head starts to like fill in all the gaps and play out all the, the worst case scenarios, right? Maybe for you, it's not, you know, relational life or, or work life. Maybe for you, your worst case scenario is in the, the political arena. And what haunts you is this concern that January 2021 is going to come around and the wrong person, however you see that, the wrong person is going to be sitting in, in office over this country and that terrifies you. Or, or maybe for you, your worst case scenario has to do with, with your physical body. Maybe you've been battling illness for a long time and you're, you're afraid of losing your capacity to be you. Or perhaps you don't have any pre-existing illness and you're just concerned about this coronavirus. And there's little things. Every time you hear about it in the news, it's, it strikes fear. And it doesn't just, it's not like this passing fear, but it, it kind of grips your heart. Maybe for you, your, your biggest concern, the thing, your worst case scenario doesn't really have so much to do with you, but maybe it's about somebody else in your life. 
Uh, maybe it's about your kids or your spouse. And in the worst case scenario in your mind, the worst thing that you can envision, your biggest fear is that you could lose them. That something could happen to them physically or, or emotionally or even spiritually, and you're kind of haunted by these things. I think we all have our versions of worst case scenarios, and we spend a lot of our lives, a lot of our time, a lot of our resources trying to figure out how to not fall into that worst case scenario. In fact, most of our lives, I, I think if we, we were to dig down deep enough, most of our lives are arranged in such a way to avoid our worst case scenario. And this morning, as we continue in our study of Mark and kind of going through verse by verse, chapter by chapter in Mark, we're going to be examining these two kind of intertwining stories of people who were facing their worst case scenario, like the worst thing that could happen to them. And the, what, in my opinion, is the surprising way that Jesus handles them dealing with their worst case scenario. So if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to open up to Mark chapter 5, uh, beginning in verse 21. And as you're turning there, I, uh, I want to give you a little bit of the context, because there's a, this story that we're going to be looking at, it actually it, it takes place in a, a broader string of stories that happen in the Gospel of Mark, starting back with where we left off last week. So if you were here last week, Robert was preaching on parables that Jesus was teaching by the Sea of Galilee, and it was so crowded that Jesus and his disciples actually got in a boat and set off in, uh, into the sea just a little bit so he could kind of have like a stage. And then he was preaching to the crowds on the shore. And as it got late, Jesus and his disciples, they decided to cross over the Sea of Galilee, Galilee over to the other side. And while they were crossing, this huge storm broke out. Jesus had a long day, so he was passed out, cold, down below deck, catching some Z's, and the disciples are freaking out because this is a big storm. Now, the disciples were fishermen. Uh, you know, some of them were fishermen, so they were used to being at sea. So for them to freak out, this was not you know, a, a little you know, rocky waters. This was a big deal. And so they come down, and they wake Jesus up, and they're like, Jesus, what are, what are you doing? And they ask this question, like, don't you care? Don't you care if we drown? And Jesus gets up, and he tells the wind and the waves to shut up. And they do. Pretty cool. Uh, and, and they just calm immediately. And then Jesus asks the disciples two really important questions, questions that are going to help kind of frame uh, our understanding of the story that we're going to look at today. Two questions in Mark 4, 40. He says, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And, and what Jesus does in this moment is he links together fear on the one hand and faith on the other hand. And he says, when, when our faith is light, when our faith doesn't have substance, when our faith isn't, in, isn't weighty and, and tethering us down, then our, our fears have the, the power to drag us down, and we, we get crushed under our fears. But conversely, when our faith is, is full of substance and there's weight to it, and we're, we're tethered to who Jesus is and our faith is, is keeping us there, then our, our, our fears are relieved. Jesus draws this connection between our fear and our faith. And the disciples, they, they see this, uh, this happen. Jesus display his power in this way. And you would think that it would inspire faith and it would calm their fears. But instead, it says, they were terrified. <laughs> and they asked each other another really, really important question for us this morning. They asked each other, who is this? Who is this? Who can do this? That the wind and the waves obey him. 
because they, they had a sense of Jesus' power, but they didn't know yet how Jesus was going to use that power. And so it still inspired just a, a little bit of fear because, you know, at first they were afraid of the wind and the waves, and so that fear was kind of weighing them down. And then Jesus came along, and he demonstrated his power. And it relieved the fear about the wind and the waves. But instead, they started to get afraid of Jesus. Because who in the world has that kind of power? They say, who is this Jesus? And then after this, they they get to the far side of the Sea of Galilee. And they're in a a region called the the Decapolis. And Chris actually read us through this story two weeks ago. They come across a man who's demon-possessed. And Jesus comes through, and he actually frees this man who was demon-possessed. Uh, it was this miraculous thing. And people come out from the villages to see what happened. And, and look how they respond to this. It says, when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. They were afraid. Again, they saw the power of Jesus, but they were still afraid Because knowing what Jesus can do without knowing who he is can still leave us terrified. And and I can definitely relate to this. Because if you've been a Christian for a long time, then you probably don't struggle with whether or not God has the power to change your circumstances. You, You probably have this full confidence. God has all authority in heaven and on earth. He can do whatever he wants. And you're not afraid of things because God doesn't have the power. You're afraid of things because God does have the power. And you're not sure if he's going to use that power in a way that you're going to like. Right? Have you been there? Because I, I can definitely uh, say that I have been there numerous times in my life where I, I, I know God has the power. I trust that he has the power, but are you going to use that in a way that's going to benefit me? Or are you going to use that in a way that's going to suit my needs and, and what I'm looking for? And that brings us to the story that we're looking at today. In verse 21, it says, when Jesus had, uh, again, crossed over by the boat to the other side of the lake, all right, so now they're back on the side of the lake where Jesus was teaching the parables, it says, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, and he pleaded earnestly with him. He says, my little daughter is dying. Please come, put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. So Jairus, it says that he is a a synagogue leader, and this was a a lay leader, but it was still probably like an elected official. So this this was somebody who had some standing in the community. He was well-respected and well-known and well-liked, and he comes and he falls at the feet of Jesus. Now, in, in first century Jewish culture, men in general do not fall at the feet of somebody and plead in this way. This is incredibly humiliating for any man to do. And yet, for a man who is like a a social uh, and kind of political leader in this way, a religious leader in this way, it's even more humiliating. Jairus Jairus would never do this. And yet he falls on his his knees and he makes a fool out of himself. And this is how how, uh, fear affects us so often, right? Fear makes fools out of us all. There are things that we will do when we're afraid that we would never do normally, We would even look down on people for doing these things normally, but fear can drive us there. Sometimes there's deeply held convictions that we have, things that we we really believe in our core, and we would never do them until fear gets in. It works its way in, and the next thing you know, we're doing those things that we never thought we would do before. Fear has a power to cause us to compromise and to make fools of ourselves. 
Jairus falls at the feet of Jesus because he's afraid. He's afraid for his daughter. And can you blame him? But good news, Jesus says, yes, I'll go with you. And Jesus goes with him. Good news. Uh, but Jesus gets interrupted pretty quickly. It says, a large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors, no slight against doctors, uh, and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. All right. Now, I, I want to unpack the situation for this woman uh, a little bit because I, I think uh, we could read past this and miss the gravity of her situation. It says that she had suffered from bleeding for 12 years, and, and what this is is she had an uncontrollable menstrual flow for 12 years. Uh, I cannot imagine what that's like. Half of you probably can imagine what that's like, at least better than I can. Uh, and and. Yes, it's an uncomfortable uh, and even painful physical condition that she had, but that's like the least of her worries. Because, of course, with a condition like this, it also means that she can't bear children in a society where a woman's worth was closely tied to her ability to bear children. All right? And then on top of that, this, uh, this bleeding, all right, blood in Jewish law, it was unclean. And so for a woman to be bleeding every day meant she was ceremonially unclean every day of her life for the last 12 years, which would have excluded her from participating in religious worship. It would have excluded her from engaging in social gatherings, even like this. She would have been homebound and alone. And, and because of her condition or inability to bear children, there's a good chance that she probably wasn't married. And if she was married, where's her husband? right? Jairus is out there advocating for his daughter. Where's the man out there advocating for this woman? There's no one. She's alone. And it says that she spent everything that she had on doctors, all right? So she has nothing left. She's destitute now. She has no, like, monetary resources anymore. And on top of it, it says that she didn't just stay the same. She got worse. And so year after year, it was just disappointment after disappointment, this is a deeply broken woman, hurting in so many different ways and afraid, all right, afraid that this worst case scenario was going to be the rest of her life. But she hears about Jesus. It says in verse 27, when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and she touched his cloak because she thought, if I, I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. All right? So she sneaks up behind Jesus. She can't do this publicly. All right? She can't go out in the crowd publicly because she's going to make everybody else unclean if she touches them because she's unclean. That's how this whole uncleanness thing works. So she sneaks up. She tries to steal a miracle from Jesus. She just grabs the back of his clothes. And it says, immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. Great story. Don't you wish it ended here? Uh, and she could go home. Now she's healed. Now she can get her life back on track. Maybe she can have kids, and maybe she can have a family, and maybe she can re-engage in society and have community and all the things that she's been dying to have for so long. Now she's healed. She could do that. But Jesus doesn't let it go. Instead, in verse 30, it says, At once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him, and he turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched me? And the disciples, they, they respond, uh, you can see people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you ask, who touched me? Uh, 
like this is this is kind of like uh, I don't know if any of you do the whole like New York City commute thing on the LIRR, but. Uh, Imagine, I, I just did this the other day, and actually I think one of my favorite things about the Long Island Railroad is that moment when you're in Penn Station and they post the train, like the track that it's on, and then there's all these adults like running as if it's like recess, like the doors are open and it's, uh, I, I just have to, like I, I wish I could be a non-New Yorker like to come and see that for the first time again, because I can only imagine what goes through people's heads. Uh, but imagine you, like, you go through that whole thing and you finally get to the train and you get your little like spot where you're gonna stand because you know you're not gonna get a seat. Uh, and at the end of it, you, you say, who touched me along the way? Uh, th that's a ridiculous question. Everybody touched you. Uh, and, and this is kind of what the disciples are saying to Jesus. Like every, how can you even ask this question? But Jesus, Jesus knows. Right? He's not concerned about, you know, like, who touched me? He knows that it wasn't just, you know, a random person who touched him. It wasn't like, you know, his power accidentally spilled out of him. He knows that this woman, she, she came and she was hiding and she was in secret for a reason because she couldn't dare expose herself. Because that, that's her worst case scenario. It wasn't just the sickness, it was the shame, it was the social derision that she's experienced for so long, and so she came secretly, and Jesus won't let it go. And so they say, how can you ask who touched me? And it says in verse 32, but Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. And I don't know how long Jesus sat there looking around before she came forward, but then it says that the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole story, right? This could have been like a great moment for this woman. She was just healed, and, and yet now she or she is. She's trembling with fear because even though she's experienced the physical healing, this is the worst-case scenario. Jesus is calling her out publicly. Sure, she maybe might be physically healed, but she's still going to be this social outcast, this social pariah. Jesus is going to publicly shame her, and it says that she, she tells the whole truth, which nobody gets the whole truth, right? Uh, like, I, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty candid and open. Like, I've shared with you guys, even from the stage, some, like, personal stuff. But rest assured, you don't get the whole truth. <laughs> All right? there's, there's plenty of stuff that you won't ever hear. Like, maybe Lindsay gets the whole truth, and that's just about it. Because if you knew the whole truth, I'd be afraid. I would be terrified that it would it'd cause you to think differently about me, and it, you would judge me, and you'd shame me. And Jesus calls her out publicly to tell the whole truth in front of all of these people, all of these people, by the way, who she just you know, publicly made unclean. This is her worst case scenario. She is terrified. And in this moment where, where it was supposed to be Jesus coming along and relieving her fears, Jesus decides to just keep mounting the fear. Instead of it being this peaceful moment, she's trembling. But then Jesus does something so cool. It says in verse 34, he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Jesus comes to her and he calls her daughter. Now, this isn't just like a generic word that Jesus used to refer to women. In fact, this is the only woman in all of the Gospels that Jesus refers to as daughter. And the term that he uses is the kind of term a father would refer to his own daughter. And Jesus says, daughter. Not you there, not nameless woman, not, you know, stranger, daughter. 
And you have, to, you have to immediately connect this with the story of Jairus and his daughter. Because here was this woman who was this nameless, faceless woman who had no advocate, who had to sneak her way in and try and steal a miracle. Meanwhile, there's Jairus, the father of a daughter. And Jairus is the advocate coming and making a fool of himself for his daughter to try and, and bring freedom to his daughter. And Jesus is saying, I'm that for you. You're my daughter. And in that moment, she realizes that she doesn't just have a Jesus who can heal her. That's great. But she has a Jesus who will love her. Jesus who will advocate for her. And a Jesus who would call her his own. Welcome her into his family. In that moment, she, she gets to realize that Jesus doesn't have something that she needs, something that she's looking for. She realized that Jesus is everything that she's been looking for. She thought she was going to come and get something from Jesus that would help her get all the other things that she was looking for. And in that moment, she realized that Jesus is the one that she's been looking for. And it's this really incredibly sweet moment where she comes to see not just what Jesus can do, but who he is. And all the while, while this really sweet moment is happening, Jairus is standing there watching, freaking out because his daughter's still dying. (laughs) And Jesus is like having a conversation with this woman. And I can't even imagine what's going on in Jairus' head because like she already got her miracle, Jesus. Like you healed her. Let's go. My daughter's dying. Right? Freaking out in this moment. It makes me think of that scene from uh, Zootopia. I don't know if you guys have seen Zootopia because it's a kid's movie and most of you are adults. But uh, So there's this scene where like this rabbit comes in, super hurry, and then there's the sloth. You guys know what scene I'm talking about? All right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, the sloth is going super slow, and then the fox like asks a question in the middle. like it wants to know if like, they want to hear a joke and slowing down. I imagine Jairus has that same tension. He's like, in a hurry, my daughter's dying, and Jesus is asking questions. Who touched me? Like, who cares? Come on. And then, and then Jairus is pulled into his worst case scenario. In verse 35, it says, While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader, saying, Your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? It's done. It's over. You missed your chance. But Jesus, overhearing what they said, told him, I want you to read this with me. Don't be afraid, just believe. All right, say that one more time. Don't be afraid, just believe. Believe what, Jesus? Because, like, I believed you could heal this girl and you didn't. What am I supposed to believe in now? She's dead, she's gone. And then it says that he, uh, Jesus, he didn't let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Uh, and this happens kind of a, a few times throughout the Gospels where Jesus just takes these three disciples. Sometimes they're referred to as the three. Uh, it's kind of like his inner sanctum. They get to come along, but nobody else. It says, when they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. And he went in and he said to them, why all of this commotion and wailing? The child's not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. 
which I, I've always kind of found funny. How do you like go from mourning and weeping to laughing at somebody? And you know, I could understand if they got angry at Jesus and thought it was insensitive, but it kind of says that like they they laughed and they mocked him. And uh, one of the things that helped me understand this is scholars tell us that in uh, first century Jewish culture, it was normal for somebody during a funeral, they would hire professional wailers. So even the poorest of society would have a couple of flute players and at least one professional wailer. They were like party pumpers for funerals, uh, which for the record, if any of you outlive me, I would love some professional wailers at my, my funeral. Yeah, I mean, like just some people, like some actors to really ham it up, lay it on thick. I definitely want at least one person to jump into the coffin with me, you know, like something like that. So, yeah, I don't know, it just makes me feel like I'm uh, more loved. Uh, but they would have, they'd have these professional wailers. So when Jesus comes in and he says, oh, she's not dead, she's asleep, these are professional funeral goers. Like they know the difference between a dead person and a sleeping person. And so they're also not like necessarily tied to this little girl in any personal way. And so they, they laugh at Jesus. They're like, Jesus, you're, you're a fool. And then it says that Jesus took, sorry. It says that after he, he put them all out, he sent them all out. And he took the child's father and mother and disciples who were with him. And they went in where the child was. And he took her by the hand and he said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. And at this, they were completely astonished. And he gave them strict orders not to let anyone know about this. And he told them to give her something to eat. This uh, line there where it says that they were completely astonished. In the Greek, it it literally says they were astonished with like mega astonishment. Uh, And it actually links the the verb use of astonishment with the noun use of astonishment, which in Greek literature was a a way of kind of uh, showing the the superlative amount of astonishment. Like this is, uh, so when the NIV, it, it translates it completely astonished, like they mean completely astonished. Like their astonishment was complete. It was at the highest possible level that it could possibly be. And you can imagine if Jesus came in and he healed this sick sick girl uh, and she was just sick and he healed her, they would have been amazed. But they wouldn't have been astonished. They would have kind of expected. That's the whole reason why Jairus went to Jesus to begin with. He expected her to heal. But when Jesus rose a dead girl back to life, (laughs) nobody expected that. And they were completely astonished. And so Jesus, instead of saving Jairus and and rescuing him from his worst-case scenario, what Jesus does, and he comes and he piles on his worst-case scenario. And he makes sure that he's going to sink in fear. Because what could be worse? He just watched his daughter die. I can't even imagine. I can't imagine, like, if it was my daughter. Like, this is, this is the worst-case scenario. And Jesus is nothing, nothing to protect him from entering into this. In fact, Jesus almost intentionally drags him into his worst-case scenario. And then Jesus says, what you need is a bigger Jesus. And he shows him who he is. And he gets this sense that he doesn't just have some power. He has all the power. And Jairus walks away with a new understanding of who this Jesus is. 
And so my, my question for you is, do you know Jesus in this way? Do you know who this Jesus is? Do you know the Jesus who can command the wind and the waves and they obey him? Do you know that the Jesus who, at whom demons, they fall on their face and they cower before him? Do you know the Jesus who advocates for the outcast, who heals the brokenhearted, who adopts you into his family and loves you as a cherished child? Do you know the Jesus that can, can stare death in the face and look at the permanence of death and treat it like an afternoon nap? Do you know Jesus in this way, and do you know him in this way personally? Not just abstractly in your mind, but do you know him personally? If there's anybody alive today who uh, I, I think gets this, who like knows this Jesus this way, it's a, a woman named Johnny Erickson Tata. Uh, many of you have probably heard of her and may even be familiar with her story. A couple of years ago, I read her autobiography, uh, and it just it wrecked me. Uh, she's just incredible. Uh, but what's incredible about her isn't her. What's incredible is, is the Jesus that she knows. And I'm going to let her tell her story. I grew up in a very athletic family, tennis, horseback riding. My earliest memories of um, hearing about the God of the Bible, though, was around the campfire on the beach of the Delaware shore with my sisters, my mom and dad. But then um, through high school, um, the enthusiasm of what I had done began to wane, especially when I started confusing the abundant Christian life with the great American dream. My prayers were so self-centered, like, uh, God, help me to lose weight. God, I need a new boyfriend. God, give me good grades on this test. Just a few weeks after high school graduation, as I was preparing to head off to college, my sister Kathy invited me to go to the beach for a swim. I swam out to this raft, athlete that I was, I didn't even touch bottom, hoisted myself up onto it and then took this really stupid dive into what ended up being extremely shallow water. I snapped my head back when I hit bottom and it crunched my fourth cervical vertebrae, severing my spinal cord. Now, lying there in a hospital, doctors told me I was going to have to sit down for the rest of my life as a quadriplegic without use of my legs or, or even my hands. My hands don't work. And I remember thinking, God, is this, is this your idea of an answer to a prayer to be drawn closer to you? You, you mean you plan not to harm me? Well, what do you call quadriplegia, huh? What's that all about? And I began to see that God's plans for a hopeful future for me was not necessarily jumping up, dancing, kicking, doing aerobics, running, walking, getting back use of my arms and my legs. No, God's plans for me go far deeper, a deeper healing, a precious healing of the soul. Because as I was pushed into the arms of God every morning, and that's the truth, even to this day, don't be thinking I'm an expert at quadriplegia. But as it was then in the hospital and as it is today, every morning I wake up saying, Jesus, I can't do this thing called life. Please help me. Please show up. Give me your smile. Give me your strength because I can't make it through the day. And because I go to God with that earnest dependency and, and requirement of his grace every single day, 
I take that back, no, every single moment, I experience the sweetest, most precious, most intimate union with Jesus Christ. Yes, our body may get harmed, but it will somehow serve to enrich our soul. And I wouldn't trade it for any amount of walking in this world. We don't need uh, a smaller fear. We don't need to figure out ways of managing this and reducing this. We need a bigger Jesus. And, and Johnny Erickson taught us she found a bigger Jesus who for 50 plus years now has been able to be sustained by a Jesus who's able to overcome her worst possible outcome, her worst case scenario. And so as uh, the band comes up, I want to I challenge you with this. We have a choice in our lives when it comes to our fears. We can, we can spend our lives, spend our time and our energy and our resources trying to minimize our fears, trying to manage our fears and keep them under control, or we can spend ourselves, spend our lives and our time and our money and our resources seeking to know who this Jesus is. And, and we can't really do both very well. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, most of us, many of us, we have arranged our lives in such a way that we are focusing on trying to, to manage our fears, to make sure we don't have to face our worst case scenario. And in the process, we're missing out on the opportunity to seek and pursue to know who this Jesus is. And nobody can make that decision for you. That's a decision you have to make. And it is scary because coming to know this Jesus might actually lead you through your worst case scenario. Are you willing to do that? I want to leave you with the words of Jesus. Don't be afraid. Just believe. Let's pray. Father, you are bigger than we can imagine. You're able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine. And, and on the one hand, we know that. But on the other hand, we struggle to believe that. And so I pray that you, your spirit will be doing a work in each of our hearts to give us this settled confidence in who you are. And we pray that you will reveal yourself to us, that we would see not just your power on display, but also your goodness and to know that, that you love us and you're deeply invested in us and that you are a, a father who would play the part of the fool in order to redeem us. So we pray that this truth will be sinking deeper and deeper into our hearts and that we'd come to know Jesus as bigger and bigger each and every day. We ask this in Jesus' name.